Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, it is not a, a casual thing we do here this morning. Lord, we take very seriously our encounter with you, your presence here with us, the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of your word, the purpose for which we're gathered. So Lord, prepare us, uh, prepare us to really meet with you through this word today, to hear you, to encounter you in it, that your Holy Spirit just grabs us that we think rightly, that you stir up our hearts to feel rightly. Father, that when we leave this place, we're doing what your word says, going where your spirit leads. Uh, We're honoring you. Father, we leave here stronger in our faith, clearer in our vision of you, more assured of of our purpose in this world and what we're supposed to do right now, more confident in you because we've been with you. Lord, I thank you for our time of prayer this morning. I thank you that we can cast all of our cares on you because you care for us, every single one. I thank you for your command to not worry but to pray, to not be anxious about anything but in everything to pray. And so, Lord, I hope that's true of us. Move us to that. God, as we talk about faith today, I pray it wouldn't be just this nebulous concept. It wouldn't be something that we can't get our our minds around. But, Father, it would be something that we do. It would be the way that we live. And, God, you'd be well pleased. We want you to be glorified. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Cecilia and I were driving around town yesterday and just running errands and things. And we passed by one of our city's cemeteries, and it just sort of struck me as I was driving by there, just this thought, because I don't have a cemetery, a cemetery plot anywhere or, you know, really in particular plans regarding that, and hopefully it's not something that's imminent, but um, who knows. And, and I, I just asked her this question, where do, you think, uh, where do you think we should be buried? You know, I'm just, I'm just not sure about all this. I mean, do we, do we go to our hometowns? I mean, my, my family's all buried in, or mostly buried in South Carolina, and and her family's from South Florida, and, you know, or, or is it here, or, you know, or, or cremation? I'm not sure exactly what to think about all that. I've got some mixed feelings about that, but at least the kids could split me up and share me and <laughs> tote me around. They wouldn't have to come back and visit me anywhere. Um, as we were talking about this, which seems like a rather dark subject I get, Cecilia put it in really good perspective, you know, does it really matter? It doesn't really matter to me. I'm much more about what's on the other side of this than what's on this side of this. It's not the dying so much that matters. It certainly is not the burial and all that. It's really about what comes next. It's to know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. It is to know that one day, by the very promise of God, He's going to raise those who have died in Christ. The dead will be raised first, and then those who are alive will also meet Him in the air, and then we'll forever be with the Lord. And it just was a little bit of a tweaking of perspective, just a little bit of a reminder of hope and faith that the most important part is the forever with the Lord part. And so I hope that's your confident assurance today. You know, when we say the word hope, and I've dealt with this subject a little bit before, but let me be redundant today for all of our sakes. 
when we talk about the word hope, I hope you understand that I'm using that word in two different terms, two different ways. When I say I hope you understand, you know, I'm, I'm expecting that you will. I'm not sure that everyone does, but I want to encourage you in that way, so I hope that you do. But when we talk about our hope in Christ, it's not that sort of hope. It's confidence. It's certitude. It's reliance. When we say we have a hope, that's a steadfast hope. That's not the idea of, well, I hope that the things I believe turn out to be true. I hope that what we've heard all along was right. I hope that I really do get to see God and be in heaven. No, that's, that's no hope. That's a wish. That's a dream. I want you to have a certainty. I want you to have a confidence. I want you to have a, a faith so deeply rooted that it can't be shaken. And that's the idea behind these texts we've been looking at in Hebrews. If you've got your Bible with you this morning, then open to Hebrews chapter 11. We're picking up where we left off last week in this grand chapter of faith. This grand chapter of faith. And I titled this message this, and I want to explain my title this morning just so it makes a little bit more sense. I titled this message, Faith in Exile. Maybe I could have titled it something like this, Faith in the Real World. Faith on the ground. Faith right where you are. Faith not as idea or concept, but faith as living reality. This is what we do. This is how we function. This is how we get through. This is how we handle the stuff of life. It's disappointments, the hardships, the difficulties, the challenges. This is how we operate in a world that is increasingly antagonistic towards God, the things of God, and the people that follow God. I was having this conversation with someone the other day, and something was said to this point. This might be the hardest time in our history to be a Christian. This might be the hardest time in our history to be a Christian. Now, maybe that is true in an American context. In the last 250 years or so, maybe this is. I mean, we certainly see what happens to people publicly who stand up for biblical values or the exclusivity of Christ. Um, maybe you saw some of the videos that I saw this past week where a prayer group at a university in Texas, they were gathering to pray and praying for life and praying for the unborn. And now a huge group of people gathered around them, mocking them, throwing things at them, challenging them to fights, chanting obscenities at them and obscenities about God and words I won't repeat here. I realize that's become increasingly the norm in the culture in which we live. Yet it's hard to be a Christian. And some of us have already capitulated. We're fearful of saying certain things in certain places. We're fearful of posting certain things for the backlash or the pushback. Increasingly, the enemy's strategy of causing us to go underground, to go private, go covert with our faith, I think is working. And that even fits with the comfort level of some of us sometimes. When we think of faith, I think that's just a personal thing. That's my own belief system. That's just between me and God. My faith is personal and, and private. But real faith can never be private because real faith goes way beyond just the things you think are true, way beyond the thoughts that you have about God. Real faith shows up every single day in the choices that you make and how that you live and what you're living for and what you count on, what you trust in. And what you're all about. And that's the context of this passage. So look with me starting at verse 13 of chapter 11. We've already talked about some characters, some famous characters in the Old Testament. And you can re review those. You can listen to last week's message online if you like. Or simply look at the text above you. Some of those great characters of faith. Of those, the scripture says this, these all died in faith. They all died in faith. Not having received the things promised 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As you look at that text, there are some just some truths that just sort of, I don't know, seep off the pages, I think. You know, for us to remember that the best promises that God has for us are not going to be realized here. Which is not to say that God has not blessed us here. Chuck shared a couple of weeks ago about common grace. The notion that God blesses all people everywhere. There are common graces that anybody can enjoy. I mean, anybody can get out there and see, man, what a beautiful day. What a glorious sunrise or sunset. What a beautiful mountain vista. What a beautiful scene. What a beautiful child. All those things are common graces of God by which he shows us himself. And Romans chapter 1 says God does reveal himself that way. And God, the great creator, is glorified when we, his creation, enjoy what he's made for us. But the best things of God, the best blessings of God, are not to be realized here. What God ultimately has in store for us transcends what we could ever realize here. That's why the scriptures say, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has conceived what God has in store for us, for those who love him. All these things are yet to come. And these great saints that we've looked at from the Old Testament, some were studying on Wednesday nights, they had this keen sense that in, in addition to, way beyond all the good things God had done in their lives and how he had taken care of them and blessed them and protected them and provided for them, there was something greater. See, God is showing us all along that this world and everything that we do in it and everything that we gain from it, all the successes that we have, all the pleasures that we draw from it, all the things that we work for, it's not meant by God to fully satisfy us, never intended to. When you talk to somebody who just feels frustrated, like, why can't I find what I'm looking for? You know, no matter what I do, it never seems to be enough. Or you find that person that's listless and Again, just never, never satisfied, always looking for it somewhere. Maybe if I had a better job, maybe if I lived in a different place, maybe if I bought this or did this or stopped this or added this, or maybe if I had a, maybe I had a different relationship or whatever it is, always something else, that sort of if-then thinking. If I get this or do this, then I'll be happy. That discontent. You've got to understand fundamentally God would not allow things that he has made to fully satisfy us, for then those things would be ultimate to us. God would be creating the very idols that he says not to worship. Not only does this world not satisfy, it will not. It never will. It won't. You're never going to get everything that your heart desires. You're never going to meet the deepest needs of your life with the stuff of this world. Because God's wired you for something different. God's given you deeper desires. And for you today who are Christian in this room listening to this, maybe that resonates with you already. If you're not a Christian yet, maybe that stirs something in you. Like maybe he's onto something. Maybe there is something more, something I haven't found, something I haven't discovered. You see, God is placed within us. If you're a Christian, we know fundamental to our salvation is not just that we believe certain things to be true, or we started doing certain things we didn't used to do, or we put aside certain things that we used to enjoy doing, but God has placed in us his Holy Spirit, 
Our salvation is supernatural. It's not just natural. We have been reborn by the Spirit of God. The Old Testament prophet said it this way, God will take out your heart of stone, he'll put in a heart of flesh. In the New Testament, we would say it as being born again. We have to be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus. A new heart, a new life, a new birth, God's Spirit in us. And God's Spirit in us causes us to yearn for him and to yearn for heaven right now. Remember we said a couple of weeks ago, this purpose of God being realized, as we see in Hebrews, is God has drawn us to him. I want you to know me. I want you to enjoy me. I want to be generous to you. All those things that I have that I want to give to you, share with you, those things that down deep inside you really long for, you may be finding substitutes, but those substitutes never meet the reality. You see, there's no substitute for what God's causing you to yearn for. Down deep inside, you want to love. You want to be loved. You want joy. You want peace. You want contentment, satisfaction, security. You want hope. All of these things, where are they found? Ultimately, they're only found in God. So everything that God is doing, as we've seen in Hebrews leading up to this, in the life of every true believer, is to prepare you for eternity. Not to just to get you to heaven. The purpose of God's work in your life was not simply to punch your ticket to heaven, give you access to heaven, and then set you loose for the rest of your life to live as you will. God's working on us right now to prep us for himself, to prepare us for glory, to shape our hearts to look more like his heart, to shape our lives to look more like Christ's life, so that the things of God are the things that we have grown to love and enjoy, and that a desire for God is our greatest desire, so that heaven is not this foreign thing to us. I mean, how is anybody going to enjoy heaven who doesn't enjoy God? How is anyone going to enjoy the pleasures of heaven that has not sought the pleasures of God? This is what it's about. He's drawing us. And so as we look at this passage and we think of these saints of old, they're looking for something better. They're looking for something greater. They're looking for something more. And they recognize that everything of God is better than anything is without God. That's faith. Everything of God, whatever God gives, is better than anything this world gives that doesn't include God. Every part of it. So these, these that died in faith, these Old Testament names, these cameos of faith, why does the world know these names? Why do we talk about these names? I could poll the room and say, how many of you have heard of people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua? You say, yeah, these are names we have known. These are names we have heard. Why do we know their names? We know their names because of their faith. Not because they're private beliefs, which they didn't share. Not because they're personal thoughts, which we don't know. But because they're lives, which evidenced who they were, what they believed. Their lives which showed how they lived. So consider these for just a moment, starting in verse 17. Listen to these cameos. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise, promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph 
bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Each of these stories, huge on their own, Uh, Some of them worthy of multiple studies and messages. But today I just want to fly over from a a view from from up high. And look at why are their names here? Abraham, who we considered last week. Abraham is the principal person of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham considered God's goodness and power beyond his understanding. We've talked about the story, you get it. Abraham had been given a covenant promise, the covenant promise. If you're a student of biblical history and biblical theology, you know the Abrahamic covenant is the critical biblical covenant, one of the key covenants of all of Scripture, where God promised to Abraham to bless him by giving him a nation, by giving him a people, by giving him an heir that would be a blessing to everyone, a seed through all the nations of the earth would find blessing. And that seed had a name, his one legitimate offspring, Isaac. And then God commands Abraham to sacrifice the promise. Everything he'd been living for and waiting for, all wrapped up in this one promise. Isaac, his son, his only son. As we've talked about already, and for those of you who've joined us on Wednesday nights, you know we've covered the subject in some detail. How in the world would a dad raise his hand to his son like that? It makes no sense in any sort of conventional thinking. Somehow, Abraham's faith caused him to see God as so awesome and so good that there's nothing he would cause him to do or call him to do that wasn't good. And even if it meant taking the life of his son, then that must mean that God was going to give him his son back. And that's a deep-seated faith, a goodness of God and a power of God that goes beyond our understanding. That relates a little bit to how we pray this morning. To believe that God's goodness is bigger and better than you are imagining it to be. And God's power to be greater, maybe than you've ever contemplated. He is good to hear us and answer us. He treats us like sons and daughters. It's out of his goodness he responds to our prayers. But he's not just a benevolent God who lacks the power. He has the power to do whatever he chooses to do. And nothing is outside of him. What about Isaac and Jacob? Isaac and Jacob trusted the covenant. They trusted that what God had said was true. This is real. This is our life. That God is building something here. That God is establishing a people and a lineage through whom eventually he's going to save the world. They trusted in this covenant and they trusted God's ability to carry it out. And there were all sorts of difficulties along the way. 
join us on Wednesday nights in Genesis because we're right there. You can jump in right now. We just got to Isaac, so you're not too late. How God keeps his promises, how God is faithful to God, how God is forever consistent. He'll never be anything different than he is. He'll never stop being good. He'll never stop being true. He'll never stop being righteous. He'll never stop being holy. He is steadfast. He is faithful. He's the definition of those things, and they passed it down. And what about Joseph? I can't wait to get to Joseph in Genesis because he's, for me personally, he's my favorite character in the book of Genesis. What about Joseph and the great story of his life? Joseph, who drew the hatred of his brothers and jealousy. Joseph, whose own brothers kicked around the idea, if you can imagine, probably you can if you've got older brothers, I do. I could probably imagine them at some point having a conversation. Do we kill him or do we just make it look like he's dead? Um, Joseph's life and all the difficulties, the hatred of his brothers, the selling him away as a slave, the life as a slave, the time imprisoned, all those things. Joseph, throughout his life, lived in light of God's sovereignty. You remember the great words of Joseph at the end to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? Man, that's huge. That's not just poetic. That's huge. That's saying everything that you did and all the things that have happened to me, do you know who was always in control? God. He never stopped being in control. And when I was falsely accused by an Egyptian official of sleeping with his wife, and I got in prison for that, when you guys sold me into slavery and I had to live through that, when I had to work my way all the way to the top here and all the stages in between, you know who was in charge all the time? It was God. He didn't live in shadow of his sufferings. He didn't live with his constant sense of woe is me and pathetic me and this world is broken and nothing can be done. He said, you know, God is God, God is king, and God's got me, God's got my life. That's, that's Joseph. Here's two names you probably don't know just off the cuff unless you're way smarter than most of us. What about Moses' parents? You remember their names? Jochebed, Amram, I had to look myself. They fearlessly trusted in God, even in the face of evil. You think you live in some times that are evil? You know, as I was saying earlier, we had this discussion, is this the hardest time to be a Christian? Maybe in America, but certainly not in the world. When Jochebed and Amram had a child, a beautiful child, they said, a gift of God, someone made in God's image, this precious gift. They lived in a time where the king was killing them, fearful of a usurper. And in the face of that evil, they hid their child by faith. They put that child literally into the hands of God. God will take care of this child. You know, real faith makes you have to sometimes stand up to the culture in which you live. To say, we're not going to give in to evil. We're going to trust God. And we're going to keep being obedient. We're going to do what God says. We're not going to sacrifice our children on the altar of this world. No, we're going to be faithful to God. We're going to defy evil, even if it comes from the very top, even if it comes from government. It's Moses' parents. They were fearless in their trust of God. And what about Moses? Man, what a great statement on Moses. I, I have to sandbag this one and apologize. There's so much there that I hate to even skip over it like this. I love that statement about Moses. Moses chose rather to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now think about that for a minute. I mean, Moses was living like a king. A king 
of the most powerful, wealthiest nation on earth. Someone, someone whom nothing would ever be denied, every wish granted, every luxury afforded. And he made a fundamental choice to say, you know what? If I got to choose between getting everything that the world's got and being on the wrong side of God, are you kidding me? I would rather suffer. I would rather suffer as a slave. I would rather suffer as a fugitive of the nation of Egypt and know God and be faithful to God. You know, that sounds like a choice that's huge, right? I'll never have to make a choice like that. No, you're making that choice every single day. Do I want the fleeting pleasure of sin or do I want the pleasure of God? Do I want the knowledge of God? See, Moses had an eternal perspective. That's clear in this passage, right? No, no, no. There's something bigger than this. There's something greater than this. And this eternal perspective made him askew the materialism all around him. Materialism. That sounds like a benign subject. But that's the religion of most people. What can I get? What can I enjoy? What pleasures can be mine? What stuff is out there? What can I get my hands into? He chose not materialism and pleasure, but he wanted to please God instead. And then the children of Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, what did they do? They laid hold of God's salvation. They didn't just simply believe that God is going to deliver them and give them promise. They laid hold of it and they walked in it, right? Literally, they walked in it. They get into, first, how do they get into the promised land? There's a sea in front of them. There's an army behind them. These are peasant slaves. These are not soldiers. These are broken down peasant slaves, 400 years of slavery. And the most powerful nation on earth is at their heels. And now stands in front of them in an ocean. I still remember a professor, I think I told you guys this story before, but humor me because I find it funny. Uh, I'll tell you again. I remember this professor arguing with us that if we look back linguistically at the original languages, there's good reason to believe this was not, in fact, the Red Sea. Maybe you've heard this argument. It was actually something called the Sea of Reeds. And the Sea of Reeds sometimes will flood over. Sometimes it's dry and it's just grassland. And sometimes a lot of rain will accumulate there. And the Sea of Reeds. And so there's a real possibility that the nation of Israel actually walked through something that could have been as shallow as 18 to 24 inches of water. So really, it's more of a natural occurrence. You know, here's a sea of reeds, and it's low, and they walk through it. So that's really amazing how a trained army could drown completely in 18 inches of water. That's just as fascinating to me. So if they walk through 18 inches of water, and God drowned the nation of Egypt, or the armies of Egypt in 18 inches, still miraculous to me. But it's not. God split an ocean, and they passed through it. Now, they had to walk. Because if you read the story, when did the, when did the waters begin to subside? When did the waters split? When they started walking. And then they get to a city. The first thing they encounter is a massive fortified city. A city with walls so wide that you can ride a chariot across the top of them. What are they going to do? They didn't bring catapults with them. They don't have the means by which to take down the city that stands between them and promise. But what did God tell them to do? Walk around it and pray. And on the last day, you're going to shout and sing, and I'm going to bring it down. And he did. They walked in that. They believed, and they acted on their belief in God's word. And here's the kicker for me. Even when they could not have possibly understood it, because it doesn't make sense. Walk into this ocean, I'm going to split it. Walk around this city, I'm going to befall it. Listen, that's faith. Faith isn't just saying, I believe in God. I believe I'm going to go, go to heaven when I die. Faith is walking in it. Faith is doing something about it. 
Faith is saying, if I believe this, then what should I be doing because of it? And they did. That's the children of Israel and Joshua. What about Rahab? Time prevents me from going into her story. Rahab was a prostitute. She was one of the first and maybe the most colorful character that we see in the Exodus account as they go into this new land. But God gave her a message and told her to throw her scarf out the window as a sign and to welcome these spies and to protect them, protect them from those who would try to kill them and destroy them. And she heard it. She heard the message of God. She, she responded to it. Even throwing the ribbon out there seems to evoke a little of the idea of the Passover itself when put the mark outside your door, the blood of the lamb. Trust in what I'm saying. Take action on it, and you'll be delivered. And she did. And God gave her grace. God gave her grace. Someone who didn't deserve it. The passage that we just read a moment ago says she didn't die like all the others who should have. She didn't suffer like all the others. Because God offered her grace and she took it. Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you'll take the grace of God, God will save you. Even Rahab. And so now later when we look at the story of Rahab, we see her in a whole different light. Yeah, we know what she once was, but that's not how God sees her now. And that's not how she's recorded in the annals of faith. She accepted God's grace and she entrusted her life to it. That's the example she set there. She put her life on the line for it. Again, it's not a word-for-word picture of New Testament salvation, but the imagery is clearly there. What you have said to me, I will believe I'll stake my life on it. And she did. And next week, we'll look at all the rest. They all believed in. They all lived for something better. Starting at verse 32. All of them. All these saints. And so the little time I have left, I want to ask you this question about them. And then I've got one question about you. About them. What did they all have in common? What did all of these people have in common? All those who died in the faith. Who faced all of these challenges and obstacles and yet followed Christ. Honored God. Lived it out. What did they all have in common? First of all, they all had a life-giving promise. They had a promise. They had a promise that God had made to them. It says they had not yet received the things promised. Every Christian's got a promise. I shared some of those promises at the beginning. I've got a promise that when I stand before the Almighty, my sins will not be reckoned to me, for they've already been reckoned to Christ. I've got a promise that when I die, I'll be in the presence of the Lord. i got a promise that God will one day resurrect those dead bones and take me to everlasting glory. I've got a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. There are a lot of promises all wrapped up in the promise that Jesus made when he says, whoever comes to me, I'll receive them. A lot of promises there. You've got them. They had a life-giving promise. Each of them also had some clarifying perspective. When I say clarifying, something that makes things make sense for them. Listen to the phrase that I read just a moment ago from the first part of the text. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's perspective. They acknowledged it. I wonder if every one of us in this room have actually acknowledged that. It's not the same thing as saying, do you acknowledge that there's something after death, that there is eternity in heaven? No, it's more than that. It's acknowledging that at your very core, by the very nature that you have, particularly since the new birth in Christ, you're an exile here. 
You're not supposed to fit. It's not supposed to feel like home. Everybody here is not supposed to love you or even like you. You're supposed to be out of step with this world and out of step with this culture. You're supposed to be going in a different direction. You're supposed to be living for different things, living for different purposes and and living for someone else's pleasure, not just your own. You're supposed to be. They acknowledge this. That's just perspective. And it's part of the recognition I shared at the beginning. Everything I want is not here. Everything that God intends to give won't be given here. I'm an exile here. I'm passing through. I'm on a mission here. I got a purpose here, but it's not just the stuff here. So they had this guiding purpose as they passed through. What does it say? They made it clear they're seeking a homeland. They're seeking a homeland. That doesn't say I'm earning a homeland. I'm seeking one. I'm living right now in light of living forever. So you make decisions in light of that. You make the sort of decisions that hold up in eternity. You make the sort of decisions that matter in the long run. You're living in light of this, this, this purpose. Listen, I'm living in light of God. God, what would you have me to do with the time? What would you have me to do with the ability, the resources, the relationships, the influences, all those things, this guiding purpose, making choices that hold up in eternity. So that sort of purpose then gives you defining priorities. It helps you put things in order in your life. It helps you to sort things out, what really matters, what doesn't matter so much. When you've got a clear perspective on who you are and why you're here, that sort of purpose that goes along with that perspective, it helps you put your priorities in line. Maybe this doesn't really matter so much. Maybe I'm giving too much time for this. Maybe that's not worth my time at all. Or maybe I should take something that I've given little time and attention to and move it way up the list. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, verse 15 says. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. If their focus had been on what they left behind, if their focus had been on this stuff, if their focus had been on this world, the one that they're exiles in, no, I don't know. You know, maybe I want more of this. Maybe I want to enjoy that. Maybe they become a character like Demas in the New Testament. Demas, who loved this world so much, he turned his back on the faith. But no, they didn't do that. They were focused on where they were headed, where they were going, who they were. and helps us align our priorities. If I'm living for God's pleasure, and I'm living in light of eternity, knowing that God is preparing me for that, I think that changes some things for me. You have to decide what they change for you. They also had enabling perseverance. They persevered. It's not a small statement that the beginning of this passage says they all died in faith. You can write a word beside that in your notes if you like. If you like, intact. Their faith was intact. It wasn't in tatters. It was intact. They finished well. Were they imperfect along the way? Yeah, but they died in faith. There's nothing better that I could say of any of you if I should have the opportunity to preach your funeral service, your memorial service, than to be able to say this. I don't know all the moments of their life. And I don't know all the struggles. And they, like every one of us in this room, surely have some regrets and some failures. But I can tell you this. They died in faith. They died with their faith intact. They finished the race. And all this comes together, this whole picture all comes together 
to produce beliefs and behaviors that mark people as gods. What I believe to be true, what I hold on with all my heart and mind and what I do and say, those people belong to God. I can see it. Look how they live. They belong to God. And what's the, what's the final beautiful statement of God's grace in all this? They enjoy God's pleasure. I love this. God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is proud to be called their God because of faith, because they trusted him and they lived it out. So I ask you two questions. The first one is this. What do they have in common? Maybe I've shown you some of those things. But the bigger question is this. Do you have what they had? You have what they had. Because that divine perspective enables you to get through a lot of things. Without it, you're going to struggle at many things. To recognize that God did not make you just for this world will help answer a lot of things. Why didn't he make me healthy again? Why didn't he answer this prayer? Why didn't he give me this thing I, I so desired? I can't answer the specifics of all those, but I can tell you this. Listen, you're in exile here. This world is not all there is. God has promised for you good, ultimate good. And God is generous towards us. And God, God has things for us that we haven't even seen yet. So hang in there. It'll come. It'll come. That healing is going to come. That blessing is going to come. And there's going to be a time where you're not going to give a thought to what you eat or what you drink or what you have. Because there'll be no lack in you for anything. And that hurt that you've got, that, that pain that you feel, that, that loss that you still have to live with, that won't be forever. Because he's promised that he's going to wipe away your tears. He's promised that you're going to live in a place where there is no crying there. There is no mourning there. There's no sadness there. Because God's going to make everything right. Some of those things he's going to make right now. Some of those things he's going to make right then. The eternal perspective says this is not all that there is. But if we keep reminding ourselves that God made us for a city, he made us for a new homeland, and he's taken us there. And maybe that changes a bit on how we live every day. I'm going to ask you if you'll pray with me. If you'll just bow your head where you are. Just close your eyes if you would even. I, I just want to give a moment of, of private response, of personal response to this today. I got a question for you that I, I'd like to know your response to this morning. Do you believe in your heart that you belong to God because of Christ? And one day he's going to take you to be with him where he is? He's going to take you home? Are you confident of that today? If you are, will you just do this just for my sake this morning? And hopefully encourage you to. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up just for a moment? Say, I believe that. I belong to him. He's going to take me to be with him where he is. He's taking me home one day. I believe that. Let me put your hand down just for a second. Would any of you be willing to say this morning and hear, no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I belong to him. Or I don't think I do. But I want to. I want to know I belong to him. 
I want to know he is my God. He's not ashamed to call me his God. My God. He's not ashamed of me. He's received me, accepted me, he's forgiven me. And he's going to take me to be with him. I'm not sure, but I want that to be me. Would you be so bold as to slip your hand up just for a moment? And let me pray for you this morning. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. The solution to that is to cry out. I wish I could confer it to you. I wish I could just, I wish I could step down from these steps and just hand something to you. I wish I could pronounce it over you. But I will tell you this, it's there for the asking. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him. Call on him right now. God save me. Tell him you know that you need to be forgiven. He knows your heart already. He knows your thoughts. He knows the transcript of your life. If you come to him humbly asking for forgiveness, you absolutely will, will receive it. Affirm with your own words that you believe Jesus demonstrated God's love for you by living perfectly, sinlessly, dying for our sins, your sins, my sins specifically on the cross to pay a penalty for sin, but that he did more. He's not our martyred king. He's our risen king. He died for us. But God raised him to life with the promise that all who believe in me will also be raised. Jesus said that. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. That promised resurrection is the promise of all these things. Ask him for it. God, save me a sinner. Save me a sinner. Give me new life. Put your spirit in me. Start that new thing in me today. Make me new. Make my heart new. Make my life new. Make my future new today. Call on me. Call on me, he's saying. And I'll hear you. Father, may we be people of faith. Real faith. Faithfulness, faithful living, faith that shows itself up in praying, faith that shows up in obeying, faith that shows up in trusting things we don't understand, faith that shows up in doing hard things that are costly, faith that shows up by causing us to go against the culture or the tide, faith that makes us fearless, faith that we won't let go of regardless. May we be people of faith. Father, work in us to that end, I pray. And as I do pray that, I thank you for your patience, your mercy, and all the grace that makes that possible. Lord, now I pray you call someone to yourself and that they would feel not just my invitation to you, but your invitation to yourself. The Holy Spirit would stir up in them faith now, and they would believe, and in believing, they would be saved. And Father, all those prayers we laid out today, those prayers that are still in our minds and hearts, Father, we say by faith in advance, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you have done already, but thank you for what you're still yet to do. 
thank you for how you're going to answer those. Our prayer of faith is thank you today. Lord, we love you. We want to please you, for you are great. You are our great king. You are our perfect high priest and sacrifice. And we long to see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.